This episode of Atomic Moms is brought to you by Speakaboos, the only interactive digital library designed for pre-K through second grade. Go to speakaboos.com or your app store for a free trial. Start building your child's love of reading today. Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss. Each week, we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. You can find us on iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms and AtomicMoms.com. They're not doing it because they don't understand. Let's let let's start assuming that our children know more than we think, not less. You'll get a much better result. Joe Newman, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. I am here with my girlfriend, Marie Horgan. Everybody last week listened to her insane comeback birth story. Hi, guys. Uh, So she is What's a comeback birth? Oh, well, you're going to have to listen now. On your drive drive back to Santa Monica, uh, you have homework. I got it. So, Joe, I want to start off by saying, you know, at age seven, you were diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah. And- how did you end up on this path of raising lions? Yeah, it was, um, I, you know, initially it was kind of reluctant, reluctantly, I guess. Because I, when I left school, I, I left with a bit of a chip on my shoulder and, and really with no interest in going back. I went to college right out of high school based on SATs. And because in Maryland, you could have horrible grades and still go to state university. And I lasted seven weeks. And then I shaved my head in a mohawk and moved to Florida to what? surf, and that was, you know, lived there and, you know, worked as a cook and I picked oranges and sold encyclopedias. And and so after 10 years of about 35 different jobs, you know, I just hit a crossroads. I think I was just partying way too hard. And, you know, I was a serious person, but I was also kind of all over the place. And, um, you know, I spent about five days I was chanting. I'm a Buddhist, so I chanted really uh, enormous amounts for days, just sort of asking the universe, what am I supposed to do? Because I need something to point all this at, because otherwise I think I'm just going to drive it off a cliff. And, um, and growing up, were your parents concerned? Did they Were they saying like, oh, man, Joe's lost? Or do you have siblings? Or yeah, you, you know— um, I was definitely the identified patient of the two of us. I have a sister. Um, and uh, and they were concerned. I mean, I, I I did more than one visit to a military academy. Was I sort of like, do you want to go here? Because we've had mm-hmm. enough. And, you know, a lot of counseling and saw therapists most of my early years. And, um, you know, and but I think my parents did a good job of helping me understand what it was that I was uh, – who I was by – letting me come off of Ritalin and choose to be on Ritalin on weekends and summer camp. And and so I was very cognizant of there's my brain on Ritalin and there's my brain every day. And there's pluses and minuses there. Um, and there were times I chose to take the Ritalin just because I knew I would kind of uh, become isolated and uh ostracized if I didn't because I couldn't control myself. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there came a point where I realized I can't take this anymore. i got to figure out how to deal with the mind I have. And is that when you found Buddhism? Um, no, that started th- at 14. That's so, early. Yeah. yeah. At 14 is when I took myself off the—I mean, the I took myself off Ritalin at 14. Oh, okay. Started Buddhism when I was 19. Okay. And— um, 
Yeah. So I just really, and so when I was 28, I just really kind of prayed, what am I supposed to do? What's meaningful? And all of a sudden it hit me that all the years of school was a chip on my shoulder and the years since then kind of working that off, learning how to live in the world. Because I think the world is a lot nicer to ADD people than school is, mm-hmm. to be honest. And well, you can be incredibly successful. I mean, that's my dad's right. big thing. He has ADD and it's bouncing off the walls. And he's like, well, that's why I am who I am. Like, yeah. So I, I, I realized paid for your college like, tuition or half. My mom, my parents are divorced. My mom would be like, I paid half, but he paid half my college tuition because so I could sit quietly and study through his work that he's been able to do because of the benefits he's had from having a mind that never stops and is sort of obsessive right. and not never tires. Right. Yeah, I'm always heading to something interesting, and <laughs> trying to stimulate. You know, gets and so, but I just realized that I was at that moment, you know, at the end of about five days of this, you know, prayer meditation, I just, I realized, oh, you know, I'm just now realizing that I'm not broken. I'm not disordered. There's nothing wrong with my character. But how many millions of kids are having that experience right now, this moment? And that afternoon, I walked into a local elementary school. And I just said, you know, can I work with the kids that your teachers can't stand? They get thrown out of every class. And they were like, really? <laughs> and I had my own business. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you 20 hours a week. And they were just, you know, no fingerprints, no background check. I had no degree. They didn't care. They were just like, let's see. And it worked out well. And uh, one thing led to another. And so you did that. And, you know, between that and where you are today, you know, it one of the things that was interesting to me is that you originally worked with a pretty disordered like child base, and now you're working in a much more expanded group of just kind of everyday problems. You right. know, so I I met Joe at an event that uh, ter- our friend Teresa held, and my son is by no means diagnosable. Right. You know, but we have challenging behaviors that I really wanted to help getting a handle on as he gets older and stronger and more willful, and so. How did how did that evolve between, you know, being first just with the worst of the worst to kind of everyday problems that parents deal with? Yes. So, um, yeah, so initially it was always it was kids that had been thrown out of every camp or every school, you know, and ended up. And I liked the extreme of that group. Um, And um, I think what I found out when I, you know, when I published the book, I didn't expect the reception it got. I thought it would be bought by parents of children with disorders at schools where they taught children with disorders. Not that I thought those children were disordered. I thought those children actually got to that place from a very natural way. Not healthy for them, not good, but there's nothing unnatural about their thinking. Um, It's logical. It's logical. And I think that's why I have a lot of success with those children. I don't see those children as disordered. I don't see those extreme children as aberrant or broken in any way. I see those as natural reactions to what happened and their experiences, and we can turn those around. So when the book came out, actually, the, the first subtitle was Saving Our Children from Behavior Disorders. There's an old one right there. And um, and I had to change it because I had, at the end of the first year, I had a school board member come to me and say, I resisted reading your book for months because despite all my friends telling me to read it, because I said, my kids don't have disorders. 
So I changed it to the art of compassionate discipline. Right. Right. The art of compassionate discipline. Because it turned out that what I learned from those sort of the front lines had broad application to culture, a cultural shift that was happening with all our children and an insight, gave insight into the, the minds of children and what motivates them. So now 98% of my sales are to ordinary parents mm-hmm. with children who are not diagnosable. And compassionate discipline is so important because, and in saying that, I think in the title, because when we think of discipline, so often we're afraid that there's going to be an even bigger disconnect between us and our children. And we're scared that, uh, you know, the word timeout comes up in your book, and we're going to talk about that. Right. Because at least right now in the parenting world, it feels like timeout is a bad word. And it is, um, you know, it's shaming, it's causing isolation and separateness, and it will create bigger problems. Those are the ideas out there about right. timeout. Going back for a second, why I was excited about your book is I was in soccer with uh, Marie and with our children, and Sabrina had taken a month off of soccer because we were out of town. And when we came back, Patrick was playing soccer. He wasn't <laughs> running away. And it was ridiculous because suddenly Sabrina, who I was so proud of because she was like the girl on the field, she was just kicking ass and so focused. We take a month off, we come back and, oh, she's like on another planet. She won't stop singing Frozen. (laughs) She's running to the hills. I mean, she wants to go find her family of coyotes. Like, And and then suddenly I'm the one doing sprints across the playground to try to bring her back. And I was like, Marie, what? What changed? What happened? How are you guys able to do this so um, peacefully? And your husband would be there as well, Quinn. And to watch you guys interact with Patrick in a way that was so respectful, but there were boundaries. And it was, we're going to sit for a minute and you're going to sit with me. Right. And I was like, okay, what is this? I need, I need in on this. Yeah. And it was amazing. And it was a lot having read your book and talking about the stories. I mean, my son is a hundred percent me just walking around looking like my husband. You know, it's so funny. He looks exactly like my husband, but he is totally me, just as willful as I was as a child. And uh, we were having a lot of trouble, you know, with with some of his behaviors where he was hitting his friends. and And it was stuff that was hard because he's a lovely kid. Um but we don't want to allow him to do things that make other kids not want to be around him. Right. You and, know? and now we're in that place. And so, you know, and, and really makes the parents not want to have their kids around him and things like that. Yeah, I'm losing friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did this. And, and I'll be honest, the first time I enforced a timeout, it was, it was really awful. Um, and he screamed for 30 minutes straight. And I, and, but what I saw was someone used, I don't know if it was you, but someone used the phrase, you know, you want to get to the wall of futility as quickly as possible because the faster you get there, the faster they acquiesce. And so I just, I was like, I will sit here as long as you want. I will sit here and let you scream as long as you want, but we're, we're not getting up until you sit down for 30 seconds. Um, I think the important thing about that that moment, because you have to hit that moment with a willful child. You just, they need to know where the end of the road is. Um, 
is it for me that's a very intimate moment yeah is it there it's natural for children to test the boundaries to press out to find out if what their will is capable of and if you're like them and if that effort out is never met yes they're in some very in a very real intimate way alone yes mm-hmm. and that's anxiety producing yes and it's only in that moment when you wait through that what might be your most difficult 25 or 30 minutes as a mom when you wait and you hold that boundary and he screams and he tantrums and he kicks and he threatens and maybe cries and and then you wait and let him solve it that only have you finally yeah. kind of come to a place where he can press up against you comfortably and know where you know he ends and you begin and it's a very intimate moment yeah you know and i think that the nature of conflict, and I think it's what we'll get back to time out, mm-hmm. but time out is, is, you know, rightfully maligned because timeouts are paired with shame, guilt, loss of autonomy, um, you know, hundred hundred things that we don't yeah, want to And this include. idea of like, I'm giving up on you. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm abandoning you. Yeah. Right. Like enough of this. And it's no. <laughs> it's, there, it's typically not done in an intimate way that recognizes the autonomy of the child, correct? Uh, a compassionate way, and but that doesn't have to do with timeout. That has to do with how we as a culture mm-hmm. uh, deal with conflict. Yeah. Is it conflict needs to be bad? Well, children learn through conflict. Children learn through testing the boundaries of things. And if we're going to constantly pair that moment with shame, guilt, uh, anger, or something negative. We're never going to be able to speak to them on their level. And I love what you talk about when you discuss that the consequences need to be immediate and uh, and not to just let it fester and fester until there's this huge blow up. Right. And I, so much of what you say is so logical, and I feel like that a lot of people that are that lean into conscious parenting, which I know Marie does as well, um, that there is a lot to t- you know you. I, this is a form of conscious parenting, I think, um, because you are so um, emotionally connected to your child and you want to empower them and you're acknowledging their need for power and their need for um, their own sense of self. Like you're not putting it upon them. You write, let consequences teach. When adults try to tell children what they should feel, empathy, compassion, generosity, et cetera, what they actually feel is shame and guilt because they didn't have those feelings. Right. And I'm in this crazy cycle now with preschool. If I turned our house into a yoga studio, Sabrina's still going to be a queen bee. She's still a lion. Like she's, this is in her DNA. Like right. if you met my great aunt Ida who lived to 104, or if you met my grandmother, or if you, you know, if you, it's in our, it's just in us. And there are amazing qualities that can come from that. Yeah. She's a leader. Yeah. But she also loves, and, what, and you describe this a lot in the book, and I saw it, I see it mirrored in my child. Like she loves the conflict. She loves talking about it afterwards. Right. Oh my God, it's so embarrassing. We were leaving school and Sabrina was like, well, I hit so-and-so. And I go, well, did you discuss it with your teacher and what happened? And then the other student was walking behind us with her mother. And then Sabrina goes, I want to go say I'm sorry. 
And I was like, oh, God, do we really have to right now? Like, like this moment has passed. <laughs> right, like, right. Do we now have to talk to the other mother about what happened? So Sabrina runs up to her and is like, I'm sorry I punched you. But it's like she just wants to talk about the drama. It's right, exciting. Right. It is it. exciting. I mean, one of the things that, that I come up with a lot, and I don't know if you read, there's a, uh, on my website, uh, RaisingLions.com, there's a blog called Little Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, that, that describes a lot of scenarios that I run into. So um, the the brief, and actually I just made a little film about this, which is going to come out on the 10th. I'll release it from on the website uh, about this particular episode. So a lot of times children will go into preschool and they, they're looking at the social dynamic and they're looking for social power. Mm-hmm. And children are not... You know, some children want to please, but some children want social power and they want the excitement of that. And they'll play the role that's open to them for that. So if you look around your preschool and you see, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Lukes and there's a lot of heroes and princesses and all of these roles. Imagine, you know, the cast of Star Wars, but all of a sudden, you know, and you can't find your place in that social structure. Well, Darth Vader is a really good choice. And and it's exciting and it's fun. And I've seen, you know, little boys and girls walk onto the play yard where the other kids will like scream, oh, no, it's Connor. And they run away. It's, you know, it's almost right? like you're a rock star. Yeah, I mean, totally. it's exciting. And, and that's what I'm kind of, I'm a fearful that we'll have it with Sabrina. Because right now she's Queen Bee, so everyone wants to be your best friend because she has that power. But pretty quickly, yep. they're going to stop playing with her. No, and that was the thing we had to, with Patrick, was that it was exciting to him that he would run up. And there was one child in particular in our little group who would cower and run away when he'd come up. And Patrick would, you know, kind of impulsively hit or scream in their faces. And it was exciting to him. And so we had to just very kind of calmly disincentivize that behavior. And that was what the timeout did. It was, you know, when it escalated, it was, you know, we're going to take a break. We call it a break. You know, you're going to, you do that, you're going to have to come here. You do that again, we're leaving soccer. Right. You know, that's it. It just has to be, it had to be so black and white to us. And and the image you used uh, at the event we went to that you just talked about that was, you know, it's a hand reaching up and it's waiting. Is there going to be a hand coming back down to grab my hand? Is there someone there? And if you don't show them that someone's there who's as powerful as they are, in some ways it's neglectful. Right. And that was a really powerful image for both my husband and myself, that he's a strong-willed, smart guy. He needs to know we're there and we're with him and we'll help him, help him walk through this. Yeah. And, and the other thing you did is you created a very simple map. So children are... are from like 18 months old, the research is showing children are picking up the cues and making mental maps, like com- oh, yeah. really complex, you know, uh, maps with probability of what will happen in this. So, mm-hmm. you know, you say to a kid that... Oh, she has this know, all worked out. I tell, we tell Brian that no means no, and and he doesn't believe us. That's because Brian knows that no does not mean no. Yeah. No means I can do it four more times if I ignore you, six more times if I'm charming. <laughs> Yes. You know, that's oh, what I, no means. I know. And I, that's, reading your book, I got so excited because I was like, oh, man, now I'm really watching her. I'm watching how mm-hmm. she is doing this and I'm right. getting played. And I know I was getting played, 
But uh, to have the curiosity as a mother to right. be like, oh, this is interesting. This is her tactic now. I have a background in acting. And so in acting scenes, you're always supposed to figure out what is the character's objective. And it's all about what do they want and how are they going about getting what they want. Right. And that is exactly what our children are doing, or at least mine. And I think, you know, um, responding to things you don't understand in terms of behavior with curiosity that's a great response because they're not doing it because they don't understand. Let's let let's start assuming that our children know more than we think, not yep. less. You'll get a much better result. So when you're curious, you're like, well, perhaps I need to understand what's motivating this. Because as soon as you do, you can shift because you control all the resources mm -hmm. and you can create a different set of motivators mm -hmm. or a different set of results so that their motivation goes in a direction that you find healthy. Can we talk about the problem about talking? Yeah. Just how we talk everything to death? Well, I, I just, you know, I, I became kind of um, uh, vigilant, veering on, uh, militant, you know, and policing my husband on this. Let's not talk about it. Right. He knows what he's done. We don't need to explain to him. So now we have a second child and... Uh, and Patrick will do something, and my husband will very earnestly get down on his level and say, you know, we don't put our foot on the baby's face and push backwards, you know? And I'm like, let's not – he knows not to put his foot on the baby's right. face and push backwards. You know, now we're looking kind of foolish, you know, that – that like, do we not understand this? Why right. are we explaining this to him? Right. You know, right. it's it's very funny, but it is much more effective to just say – you know, sit down. Right. Yeah. You just, give, just give him a little bit of data. That's yeah. what he needs. Because every time you say something uh, that he knows, that statement gets weaker. Yep. Because there's no action paired with it. And you say it three God, times. Man, I'm so full of an action. You know, it's like, <laughs> don't hit your sister. Don't hit your sister. Don't hit your sister. By the third time, this statement just means less and less. It might be calculated in, in a little bit of probability for them. Is, you know, mom usually says that about six times, so then yeah. she loses it. And I can see that look on her face, and that's when I got to back off. But that's just a calculation. So I think, you know, when you just say, you know, he puts his foot on the baby's head. Is that yeah. <laughs> He, or he kicks them in the face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So another way to say it. He very, you know, he's he's thoughtful about it. He puts his <laughs> foot on the baby's chest or head and just pushes backwards. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So then, you know, but that a much simpler response is, you know, take a break for a minute, have a seat right there. He argues with you. You know, I think you could figure it out. Yeah. Um, okay. You know. I'm getting. Sabrina ready for school in the mornings. And we had a recent episode about Montessori and we started talking about a great way uh, to start our mornings. And, you know, you set, set out two options for clothes and she can get dressed herself and she'll brush her teeth and it's a beautiful routine. Uh, Sabrina's not interested anymore. It was great for a couple of weeks and I should probably circle back to our expert on that because I'm sure she has tips as well about what happens when the novelty wears off. But I I know that Sabrina just wants to test, like, because anything is more yeah. interesting than mm -hmm. putting on clothes. Right. She loves the drama. She loves trying to rile us up. She wants the physicality of wrestling. Like, she, I can, she wants it, man. Right. How do I get her dressed without giving her that? 
you might want to institute a this before that in the morning. So anything that she really enjoys or she looks forward to in the morning happens after the things that you need to, for her to yes, do. Yes, that that's what we're, we're doing. We're doing that now. Um, but it still takes, she doesn't want to. She'll just say no. Yeah, in which case, I think you can say, you know, it's okay. Take a break. At some point when you're having a child take a break and you say, uh, and they're going to test and see, well, let's, what happens if I show them that I like a break? Okay, so we did it for the first time this morning, uh, and then she wanted a stuffed animal. And then here's my problem. Like, I feel bad because, like, shouldn't she have a comfort thing? <laughs> Why? And then, she wanted to, and then she wanted to cuddle with me because I was right next to the stool and that she was know. sitting on. And then she actually wanted to give me a hug, so I really wanted to take it. I know every mother out there on the road right now is rolling her eyes at me. This is why I'm the guinea pig people. But it's – and this is why. So <laughs> – and then, but also last night I tried it. Okay, she. I said, you get three books before bed. Um, and I said, how about this book about New York? Because we're about to go to New York. Uh, she threw the book at me and said, I don't want the New York book. Threw the book at me. I go, okay, now you get two books. What are the two books? I don't want two books. I want three books. And it went back and forth. Uh, she threw a fit and I go, okay, no books. We're going to bed. Put her in the crib. She starts screaming and getting really hysterical. And then my husband came upstairs and was like, do you need help? And I was like, no, you're unraveling my new system. <laughs> See, I think that one thing that I would add to yes. what you're doing, so that sounded like a nat- nice natural set of, look, you know, if you're going to throw the book at me, we're not going to read the book or we might not read any book, you know. Right. But see, I think <laughs> you, can, you can pair like a compassionate tone and giving her autonomy, like recognizing autonomy, because at the heart of it, of that conflict is them saying, I have power. Yes. And they want you to say, yes, you have power. So, um, you go, look, I get it. You know, you threw some things at me. It's not, you're, you're annoyed that you didn't get a story. That's just the way it works. You know, I can't make you not throw things at me. You're a big girl now. You're going to throw them if you throw things, but that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it's a drag, no books. Yeah, but that's just the way it works. You're going to make your decisions. I respect that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll try again tomorrow. You know, that's a boundary that gives them emotionally what they need. scream and cry in the crib yeah. until she's done with that. Like, how long do you let the crying go on for? Do you stand there during it? Um, if you're there, if you want to be there, I would not be looking at her or talking to her. I would just wait, you know, because I think part of what – fuels a tantrum is the attention mm-hmm. they're getting from you during it. So, you know, your child, you, you ask your child to take a break. They don't take a break. You know, they run away from you and you have to hold them and sit with them until they're quiet. If you're talking through that whole thing, that's entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're um, trying to convince them, that's a nice power struggle. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's all sorts of things, you know, it's right. like, um, you really just want to sit there and be quiet and just, just say, I'll wait. I'll wait till you're ready. Okay. Let okay. the boredom do its work. What about the moms that are thinking, oh, man, you hold a child while they're sitting there. They're going to feel this, like, absolute sense of powerlessness. They're going to lose a sense of identity because their parent is restricting and them. And I really struggled with that because Patrick would get, you know, physically violent. And he would try to bite me or hit me and kick me. You know, we had a lot of biting issues when he was younger. And, and I felt... I mean, I think it helps at a certain point. I was just so upset and angry, you know, and or worried, you know, right, that right. like the if he keeps down this path, this isn't going 
this isn't going to serve him, right? right? Letting him do this behavior. And so to a certain extent, I was just so frustrated, but it was hard. It was hard. when you were in the moment, you were not, you were trying to stay neutral? I was trying to stay neutral, but there was a part of me that was like, this is just, I have to do this because I can't let him hurt me. It does not, and more even than like a self, a sense of self-preservation, it was, this just doesn't serve him. It will, there's no way that letting him hit me or kick me or bite me serves him to be who he can be and wants to be. And so I just, and I had to physically, I had to hold his arms and restrain him. Right. And how did... How was his emotional kind of state in the from the beginning of the first time you had to hold him to in the next month? How did that? Change? Oh, and and then it was it was thirty minutes the first time. It was ten minutes the second time, and then it never happened again. Right. I never had to physically restrain him again. Okay. I mean, it, you know, every once in a while, if he's you know really out of control, I'll stop him and say, "I'm not going to let you do this." But it, it's never been. It's a little like sleep training, right? Yeah. It's like you let them. They they figure out, and it was. I oh think, man, all the attachment parents just like left the podcast <laughs> forever. <laughs> but one of our favorite episodes is sleep training. Actually, we've got. But a see, great here's the sleeping. irony, right? I think when you're when you allow your child to negate you, mm-hmm. you disappear. Absolutely, and your child's left alone. And and yes. I think and what you were scary. saying, it's scary for them, and it's scary for them, and it's and it also becomes a blueprint for how they consider loving relationships in the future. Mm-hmm. I negate the person I love. And you talked about in one of your blog posts that really resonated with me that that you see a lot of times now these relationships where the mothers of sons particularly do this really self-negating stuff and allow their sons to treat them anyway. And that becomes the blueprint for an intimate relationship when they grow up that they expect women to endlessly cater to their needs. And that was so chilling to me yeah. and really was a wake up of, I want my son to know that women are whole people with needs, and I want him to find some feisty woman to marry someday. <laughs> Sabrina, <laughs> right down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Who will hold her own. And I, I, that just matters so much to me. And I thought that was a really interesting point you made. Yeah. And I think that, that, that basic, in, that, in conflict, in those moments when they test those boundaries, I think that's where they develop the, a core ability. That's for intimacy. Yeah for really seeing another person as equal to themselves mm-hmm. without negating that person or feeling negated. Yeah. So it's it's a it's for me those are wonderful opportunities all those little moments um to hold that boundary really firmly, really predictably while you give them their autonomy. Yeah. A lot of times just the, the statement of autonomy will will end, you know, the tantrum. I I was with a uh, a mom and her daughter her, her son and um it was dinner time. He's five and a half, and he's screaming because he wants another almond milk. She said, "You've had enough. You know, I, you know, I, you can get one after you finish your chicken, but I need you to eat some protein." And he's like, "I'm. You can't make me eat the chicken. I'm not eating the chicken." He's like, "Well, you don't eat chicken. You're not going to get almond milk." He says, I, "Well, I'm not doing it." And it's back and forth. And I leaned over to him and I said, "Look, I said if you don't want to eat the chicken, you shouldn't eat the chicken." He's like, yeah, but she won't give me the almond milk if I don't eat the chicken. I said, yeah, still, I would not eat that chicken unless I wanted <laughs> to eat the chicken. Don't make her eat you, make you make, eat the chicken. And he looks at me, he nods and says, yeah. And he just digs right into the chicken. <laughs> right? 
Because that's what he needed. That was what the conflict was about. Yeah, it's not about the chicken. It's not about the it's chicken. It's never about the chicken. It's never about the chicken. chicken. That's right. After this super quick break, we're going to be talking about... Oh, I'm so excited, guys. Joe is going to let us off the hook. He's going to explain why I never have to tell my daughter to say she's sorry again. We'll explain after this break. We all know I'm a bookworm. I read so many books uh, thanks to this podcast. And my daughter, Sabrina, can be a little more like mama now in that she's downloading books at the touch of a button. Sabrina has over 200 digital stories available through the Speakaboo's library and has got her favorite characters like Thomas the Tank Engine and the Friends from Sesame Street. Abby is her favorite, along with classics like Where the Wild Things Are. Once it's downloaded, you can access it offline. So car rides have gotten so much easier for us. And the rich illustrations, animated characters, the touchscreen interactions, they bring the stories to life. P.S. Teachers are using Speakaboo's in their classrooms. I also want to mention that the educational psychologist, Dr. Alice Wilder, one of the world's leading experts on learning through media and formative research, is behind this project. Every aspect of Speakaboo's content and product design is anchored in fundamental principles of literacy, development, and the child's point of view. It's got a reading mode that supports different levels of reading, and it's available for download for mobile devices through iTunes for iOS, Google Play for Android, and Speakaboo's.com for the web. Search iTunes and Google Play app stores or head to speakaboos.com for a special Atomic Moms offer. You'll receive a choice of a 7-day or 30-day free trial when you subscribe. Again, it's for ages 2 to 6. That's a lot of us mamas out there. We are having so much fun with this program, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Now back to our show with Joe Newman. Um, I also love that you write, children aren't moral creatures, and they aren't immoral creatures. Children are amoral. Yeah. And I think that ruffles some feathers, too, because people talk about how their babies and their children are, you know, that they are angels and that they, there's, you know, they don't have any of these negative impulses until they get to school or there's an interaction or they see some other child who does it. Because sometimes you would see kids playing and a kid would hit another kid much younger and and a mother would have this judgment of like, why is that kid being so bad? Or what's, why my child is so pure? And I was just like, they're all animals. And like, is that horrible yeah. to say? They're yeah. animals. No, like, they are. And they're, they're loving and they're wonderful. But, but they're like little scientists is, right. is something someone said to me. You know, right. if I, and and talking about the kind of the if-then, you know, logic sequence. If I hit this child, what happens? Right. If I hit this child, what does the child do? What do my parents do? And And so coming up with, you know, talking about the mapping idea. I don't know if you want to explain that a little bit, how the mapping works in terms of children's behavior. Um, so before I get to mapping, I just want to say in terms of the, the problem that really occurred to me when you're saying about thinking our children are moral creatures is that when they do something immoral, we judge them. Yeah. yeah. And, and we judge the mom. And, and we judge the mom. <laughs> And mom might judge the kid. It's, there's a lot of and judgment in there. Herself. And, oh God! <laughs> you know, it's like that. You're supposed to be this way. It's why, you know, I've had parents come to me where preschool directors have said, "I think your son is a, is a sociopath," and literally three months later, the behavior problem's gone. Yeah. Okay. And the behavior problem was gone because we changed the map to yeah. bring it back to. So map. the options are medication or map. Yes. Or sometimes a combination of both, I assume. Well, you know, for me, there's just a dearth of any sort of really logical, like systematic behavior interventions. 
I, I just think we're a yeah, little behind. Where do these behind. people go? Where do they, these children go? Right. They're, they're usually, see, the problem is that most interventions have way too much talking, and they're based on assumptions that these children understand less, and that's why they're causing a problem. And I think it's exactly the opposite. These children typically understand more. They understand the social dynamic. It's just their place in it happens to be Darth Vader, and you don't get that. Okay, that's our problem. That's not, you know, that's not that boy's problem, that girl's problem. They found they, they're, they're just looking for social power. And that's a natural response for all children. I mean, they did an interesting study. It was in the book uh, Nurture Shock, um, where they they took preschoolers, 3000 preschoolers, and they looked at what kind of media they watched. And they took the the 500 that watched the most violent media and the 500 and compared them to the 500 that watched the most pro-social media. So this is, that was media that's teaching a moral lesson about what's good and bad and how you're supposed to act. And then they, they observed them in classrooms and said, what kind of aggression do they show? And they measured physical aggression, verbal aggression, and social aggression. And they were shocked because while there was a slight, very slight increase in terms of the physical aggression with the children watching the physically aggressive videos, there was a um, highest numbers for in all three categories came from the group watching the pro-social media. So we're showing them things about how they're supposed to be good, but yet they're the ones who are teasing other children more. Is it because they're them. seeing it? Is it because they're seeing the negative stuff and then they're acting out that part of the story instead of the good side? That's, because that is happening in my household. That's exactly right. And children, I think they're just looking for tools and they're researchers. So they're like, what, what kind of tools are out there for me to get social power? So the reason these pro-social you know, um, videos were causing more problems is that in order to tell that story, you have to create a story arc, which is problem behavior, problem behavior, yes. problem behavior, problem behavior, realization, yeah. moral lesson, one good behavior. Right. All but I just all the songs away, are the negative behavior. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just got six great tools. Exactly. For social power in the classroom. That Let's, is try what she has Let's try this one. Let's try that one. Like, not bull I'm not going to say bullying because my daughter is only three and I've got to be really careful. Like, I don't want to uh, label her in yeah. any way or project onto her. Like, she's just trying out different things. Right. But some of that, the socialization stuff, like she watches someone get left out in a Daniel Tiger video and then she's having someone, she's, you know, saying, no, you can't play with us. Right. Let's try that out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's I try mean, the also, by the way, that's way more fun than playing the person who's being left out. Like right. if you're going to role play. Right, right. Now, I, I think that there's a... It's just children, children are out there trying to figure out how things work. And I, and I think that our, when, you know, our ideas of this is right and this is wrong and you should feel this and you should feel that cause more problems than they, you know, than they resolve. Because that's going to work for children who are in a place where they want to please you. Right. They're going to mimic and try and say, good, that's yes. a map for me to please you. That worked for my parents with me. Right. And it's not working with Sabrina. Right. Well, I think development is changing. Because with each successive generation, I think children are more, they get more attention at a younger age. They get more reassurance that they're mm -hmm. loved, that they, you know, that whatever decision they make, you're okay with that. So unconditional love is not the motivator. I think in the past, you know, if we wanted to manipulate our children through good and bad, that 
that was easy to do because they were eager to please you. It was almost a feeling of like life depends on me pleasing you. Fear played a big part in the motivation of children. But, you know, to our, you know, to our credit, we've eliminated the fear from the motivator. But then we have to realize then it's about autonomy, about recognizing their ability to come to decisions that make sense, not manipulating them through moral lessons of how what good and bad is. That's so to, to go back to the mapping for a second, what does that look like? All right. So so mapping is basically children are, are going to suss out in any given system of interaction. What happens when I do this? OK, so, um, you know, I, I had a parent of a you know, eight year old say, you know, I've been doing your program for a week and they're still doing this, that and that. Um, and I said, well, your child has eight years of data that formed a map that says these roads lead to this place. And if they don't, that if they press hard enough, that road's going to open and you're going to change the map to give them what they want. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they're constantly not just making maps, but they're realizing that that their actions can shape those maps and get you to change the way they go. It's like negotiation works if I'm really sweet. You know, in this kind of situation, no doesn't mean no. So all of these things create all sorts of mental maps about the way the world works. And it's why a child will act very different at home in some cases than mm-hmm. they do at preschool. Oh, she'll, yeah. You know, if Miss Kimmy says, Sabrina, do this, she'll do it. Yep. Yeah, but that's smart. I mean, I right. think, you know, it's like... It's adaptive. You, yeah, you want to be able to... When you, when you move from playing tennis in the morning to hockey in the afternoon, you want to know that checking works at hockey. And it's time to do some checking. Even the occasional fight is applauded. I mean, that works in hockey. Not so much in tennis. You know, and there's kids who move from classroom to classroom or from home to grandma's to preschool and know these are different sets of rules. These are mental maps that are laid out. So for me, it's like that's the interventions that that, uh, Marie did is very simple. She created a map. It's like, and it's just like driving down the highway. Okay, I need you to take a break for a minute. That means the Fairfax exit's coming up. If you move to the right lane in the next 15 seconds, you'll get off at Fairfax. I'll let you figure out if you're moving to the right lane. Okay, it's a it's one minute stop if you get off at Fairfax. Huh? No, it's up to you. Five, four, three, two. Oh, you just passed the exit. It's no big deal. And do you do do you count? Sure. Here comes the exit. Five, four, three. Okay. Oh, your butt's not and in the chair. that doesn't create more anxiety? I don't think so. I think okay. it's real. I think counting is very important because it, it gives clarity yes. to the map. It's that, like that exit doesn't move based on your whim. Right. You know, I'm just, well, I decided to move the Fairfax exit another mile to give you a minute mm-hmm. to, to, to think about your decision. No, okay. it just happens. No big deal. You missed Fairfax. You know, you're going to La Brea. Okay. La Brea. It's a two-minute break. It's longer. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. You know, no big deal. Um, that break's come, That one's coming up. Hey, I'm not mad at you for missing the first exit, but here comes the exit for the next one. So does that mean two timeouts, one that's shorter and then one that's longer, or does that mean you just wait for the longer timeout in this metaphor? So in this metaphor, <laughs> it was like, for instance, I did this with a mom and her four-year-old last night. And, um, you know, for a four-year-old, it was 30 seconds. It's a short break. A minute's the long break, and two minutes holding break is the is the Crenshaw exit, the last one. <laughs> so, you know, if you miss the exit, here it comes. It's you're you're just and you lay it out in a very 
even tone coaching mm -hmm. way. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, you didn't get off at La Brea. It just means that we need to do a holding break. And you walk over and you sit them down and they maybe try and run away from you and you sit them down next to you and say, I'll wait till you're quiet. And that's the way it works. And then when he got quiet, and for him, it was the first time he'd done it. And it took him 25, 30 minutes. And then, wow. 25 minutes of sitting. Yeah. Because he's squirming screaming, and negotiating. Okay. I'm not going to do it. And in your book, you say that the timeout does not start if they're crying. You right. wait until they stop crying. Right. So, and that is because it's about practicing self Regulation, which is the thing that's so exciting. This idea of you're going to give your child the skill and the capacity to self-regulate, which what greater gift could you give your kid? Right. So you let them cry as long as they want, though, beforehand? Yeah. Okay. Because you, you don't, don't want to negotiate. Say, because, look, don't. I'm really good at turning off the tears, but I think that's because I was told, as many of us were growing up, like, stop crying. Like, that isn't, like, you don't get to have your feelings kind of thing. Right. But I, I And I that think... is not what we're saying. We're saying you can... They can cry but, in the chair and then... So with this point, I was like, hey, longer. I get it. This isn't any fun. You need to cry. You cry as long as you like. And when you're finished, let me know. We, we'll, I can't start to break till we're finished. You know. I, I use the term break now instead of timeout because mm -hmm. it's so... Timeout tends to be so loaded. Yeah. But, um, you know... Good, right. And also, I'm always surprised though how quickly she can... She can Turn it on a dime. Is that right. even a phrase? You know right. what I mean? Like she could just flip that switch in two seconds. Right. Depending on how, what, if she thinks she's going to get what she wants. Right. What do I do at the airport? Like there's so much <laughs> stimulation. She wants to run around. I can't get her to just sit. What do you do if you're in a public place, or you're at a restaurant, or let's say you're at Marie's Halloween party with Patrick <laughs> and your daughter is popping all the balloons. She threw, for our listeners uh, who know our friend Bridget Maloney Sinclair, uh, Sabrina took one of the balloons and she threw her body on it. She tackled it because she wanted it and it popped. And our friend Bridget goes, well, she'll be really good at spring break games. <laughs> nice. When she's older, she'll be switching the swimsuits out in the water and then popping balloons. Um, with her belly. <laughs> so airports is that? Yeah. Yeah. So Anywhere. Think, where do I where do I do this if I'm not in a controlled environment okay. at so, home? First of all, you start in a controlled environment. Okay. You need to set a precedent in the place where you're most likely to succeed and set that pattern. Um, and then you can work it out in a car, and then a birthday party, and then a plane. I get a lot of clients right after a flight. <laughs> I bet. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> like, oh, that is they almost hilarious. landed the plane in Kansas City, you know. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And uh, <laughs> they've just, you know, they've had enough. So Yeah, what time of year, by the way, what time of year do you get the most clients too? I feel like after the holidays. After or, the holidays. Or it, probably September and October, like kids go to school and then there's Yeah, the it's, it, you know, you get it when they go to school. So you have like a little honeymoon period. So end of, end of September's. A busy time. And after the holidays, after yeah. the spring break, after the, um, you know, after the Christmas holidays. Oh, always. But I think, so you have to think about behavior. There's basically three things that are going to influence behavior. And I think even just mental health, right? So one of, we've talked about two of them in the um, maps. So there's cognitive maps. They're going to go, they're going to run the cognitive maps that work and they're going to follow those maps to get where they want to go. So if the maps are broken, you know, you're not going to get them to drive against their interest. Okay. They're going to take the route that works that they know works. Mm -hmm. So you have to set that precedent over and over again so that they, they can depend on that map. 
So that map might be when mom says, tells me to take a break, it's always easier just to take that little break. It's, it only, I, I yeah. regulate myself within this short period of time. I sit, there's no judgment attached to it. I hold myself and then it's no big deal. I keep, I can go, you know, I can continue playing. So once they've bought into that, that's a map you can use all over the place, but you don't want to be trying to set that map up in an airport. So I've got like four days. I can do this. <laughs> well, and now I want to know about the car. Joe, you because... want to come to New York with us? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I want to know about the car because that is the place we're still having trouble is uh, with Patrick spitting and screaming in the car. And uh, I feel like I have no like suction there because he doesn't care if we drive or don't drive. He doesn't care if we get where we're going generally. That's it's the generally problem with to, most things. Yeah, with it's like yeah, to yeah. go run errands. He doesn't care if we he? stop. He's three. Okay. So, you know, uh, my my husband does, you know, has, has resorted to doing the turnaround and like finger wagging, you know, and the don't you make me, you know, kind of thing. But it's it's so frustrating. And it's genuinely when he screams, it's distracting and right, dangerous. Right, right, right. And, you know, he, it's just fun for him. And so what, what, you know, how can we create a different map when we're driving? Yeah. Driving is hard. I think at some, in the beginning, though, you should, you know, you should designate a week or so where, where you agree with your husband that we're going to pull over yeah. whenever we can and we're going to stop, you know. And, you know, sometimes a car seat, mm -hmm. most three-year-olds can't get themselves out of the car seat. So it's like, you know, we're going to stop for a moment and wait till you're ready to take a break. Pull over into a parking lot, you know, step outside the car, you know, shut the doors and have a conversation with your husband. Oh, wow. Okay, so leave bored. him in there sure, and you're, get You're bored. right there but, next okay, to the window. Wi windows down, people. <laughs> windows down, sure. And, you know, or air conditioning, <laughs> leave the car like running, the you know, and air conditioning. But, but right. this is, you know... Um, I had a mom who had a three and a half year old and had an infant. Yeah. And when she got that infant, <laughs> that's my response. Huh? As soon as the infant was asleep, the three and a half year old knows. I've got her mind, you know. My mind. Yep. And so Patrick he would yep. he would demand everything and know that if if mom says no, I'm going to throw a tantrum. The infant's going to wake up. Yep. She's going to have real hell to pay. So she started like. She would. She. This is a woman in Illinois. She would go to the garage. They, they had, a, and she, which was attached to the house, leave the door open, so take the baby monitor, and she'd put him in the car seat so that it wouldn't wake up. He'd she'd just walk him out. She'd sit mm -hmm. him in the car seat, and then she'd stand next to the car. So wait till you're ready. He'd scream and yell, but it was like mm -hmm. he couldn't wake up the baby. That's so she a had really a creative, smart. That's really smart solution. We'll be bringing Sabrina to our new Atomic Mom studio. Uh, we were, it's our garage. <laughs> we were choking earlier because I've got these like padded uh, things hanging. What did you call them, Marie? Baffles. Oh, yes. So there's Baffles. a professional name for them. I'm a real uh, novice. And uh, we've got this hanging blanket. So it feels like a uh, an isolation room. It yeah. feels like a good place to throw a fit. Although Joe did point out that you could easily tear these things off the walls. <laughs> Oh, most of my best kids could. <laughs> um, I would love to end on this idea that we don't need our children to say that they're sorry. Right. I yeah. just love that. Yeah, I don't. I I'm That's really great. not a fan of apology. You know, 
I, I remember a boy um, at a school I was working with, working at, and um, the teacher had sent him out of the room and said, you're not coming back until you write a letter, you know, telling me why you're sorry. And I would not have chosen that consequence, but the teacher did. So it was like, I, I didn't want to contradict the teacher. So I was like, well, he needs you to do that. You need to take care of it. And I remember the boy writing and starting. He gets about halfway through and then he starts to scrawl and he writes, I'm not sorry at all. And he's not sorry because he had a reason to do what he did. Even though we might have thought it was bad or it was against the, with the teacher, he had a reason. He was upset about it. It's like children change their behavior because they actually feel like a regret about that or that maybe that wasn't the best choice. That didn't get me what I want. So have a conversation with your child. Did that get you what you want? And what if they say yes? Hmm, then that's kind of your problem. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> really? Because it's no, like, well, it then I got to make sure something else happens. So you're right. not too happy about that. So do I not let her talk it out afterwards the, about the drama? You know, like, for instance, when we were leaving the school and she wanted to go back and apologize and really, like, lean into the whole ex- reliving the experience. and Yeah. I See, I, I don't know that it's ha- – particularly you got to – use your own intuition about that. But it sounds like you know that she's enjoying the drama of getting Uh to be Darth Vader or talk about that that excitement of doing the bad thing. I like to think of her more as Blair from Gossip Girl, but okay, Darth (laughs) Vader, fine. (laughs) (laughs) So... Joe just like shook his head like, where am I? What padded cell in this girl's garage? That's right. I I, I have never watched Gossip Girl, so... I'm just trying to imagine. I've also dated myself. <laughs> uh, it's on Netflix, people. Uh, but, okay, so make it so that they are not getting what they want. Because, again, my daughter wants right. the stimulation, too. So yeah. how do I? Yeah, see, I think you I, – I, I don't have a lot of those kind of conversations. And when I do, they're dominated by me asking questions, not mm-hmm. giving them conclusions. Um, I love your idea of the Socratic method. Yeah, and can you can do a Socratic yeah. method with a four-year-old. Yeah. So what happened before you threw the thing? Oh, they did that. And then you threw the thing. You threw the truck at them. And then what happened? Okay. And then the teacher made you go inside. Oh, did you want that to happen? No, you didn't want that to happen. What, what did you want to happen? Oh, so did that work? I mean, the throwing the truck, do you think that worked? Or is there something else that would have gotten you what you want? And they'll, they'll break that down. Because really, if you, break, if, you get, if you get down to, did that get you what you want? And they're still doing things you have a problem with. That's our problem to fix. We control the resources. We, we really control the effects. They're making causes and they're, take, they're conducting experiments. But we can we control resources. We control a lot of those results. So if the results are leading them to do, do these things, why are we blaming them? It's not their job. Their job is to conduct experiments. Ours is to set, you know, is to set that up, and and then also to then monitor those. You know, if we have consequences or effects, really, if we're administrating effects, um, to do that in a way that's in a coaching tone. So that, you know, their resistance to us or our emotional ma- manipulation isn't really entering into the mm-hmm. equation. I feel like you're giving us the tools 
uh, some mothers out there uh, might think of themselves more as lambs and you're giving lambs the, uh, the tools necessary to be able to raise lions. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you're, you know, I'm both. I'm a weird hybrid. I mean, most people are, yeah. right? Most children are. Most children are both. Yeah. yeah. If it, I think more, you know, when children become really aggressive, they just need a boundary. They need to know that's anxiety driven. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I've seen children who were really aggressive, you know, really mean to other children. And two weeks after having a protocol where you first had to hold them, you know, numerous times, and then before they're taking the breaks, two weeks later when they're taking the breaks, they're calmer, they're happier, they're nicer to other children. Mm -hmm. There's something that's emotionally resolved when they come to that boundary. Mm. I bet they're, they feel unburdened. Yeah, you know. Because they know where their boundaries are. That must feel good. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Yeah, it just flew by. It was so fun. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, thank you. So everybody, uh, I will be sharing uh, Joe's information on our website, atomicmoms.com, but uh, also check out on Amazon, Raising Lions. Uh, I'll also have that link on our website and on social media as well. Uh, Marie, are you on social media right now? In a public way? Uh, a little eh. bit. A little okay. bit. You just said you were starting to dapple on Instagram. I'm starting to dapple. I have two pictures on Instagram. It's pretty exciting. Is it public? I'm, I'm joining 2010. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I don't even know. I okay. don't even know. All my okay. pictures on Instagram are pizzas or coffee. Yeah. <laughs> are you into pizza too? I make pizza. Yeah. You make? Oh, wait. Yeah. You said you had a store? Or uh, no. You, you had, well, that was a different thing? I used a to have a coffee shop years ago. And was this one of your 30 jobs? Yes. Yeah. And now, uh, but I, I, I do a lot of cooking. Oh, I do no pizzas cooking. Pizzas and Marie's husband does a lot of cooking, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, when? an enormous amount of cooking. It's fantastic. He went through a risotto phase recently. It was wonderful. I'm just learning risotto. Oh, what? So great. Both of you, get off my podcast. <laughs> uh, you can find us on social media at Atomic Moms on Instagram and on Twitter. And just search our Facebook page, Atomic Moms. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. <laughs> <laughs>